0: Hello and welcome to this edition of The Screen Podcast, which is the podcast for the global screen business publications, Screen International. I'm Matt Mueller, Screens Editor, and in this episode we'll be looking back at the Sundance Film Festival, which wrapped its 2022 edition on January 30th. It was the second year running that Sundance was forced to run an online-only edition of the festival. But following last year's very successful online edition, the festival knew that it was in a strong position to make this change, given how well its platform had performed in 2021. And the last 10 days had probably gone as smoothly as the festival could have hoped for, given the circumstances. Joining me today to give their hot takes on Sundance 2022 are my illustrious colleagues, Jeremy Kay, Screens America's editor, who would normally have been on the ground at the festival, And Fanula Halligan, Screen's Reviews Editor and Chief Film Critic, who has also made the trip to Park City in recent years. After our Sundance discussion, we'll hand this episode over to Finn for her conversation with Berlinale Artistic Director Carlo Chatrian, who has his own mammoth event coming up, and he'll be sharing his insights on the lineup and overall shape of this year's Berlin Film Festival, which starts on February 10th. But Jeremy and Finn, welcome. Let's talk Sundance. Before we get into the films and the deals, how much did you miss not being able to be there in person this year with the second year in a row?
1: Jeremy? Oh, yeah, I did really miss it. It's a great time to catch up and get a good download on, on what's going on in the indie space, which really stands you in good stead for the whole year. You know, you see a lot of people, buyers, sellers, you just talk about what's going on, you see the films. You know, I would probably would have been of knee-high in snow in some ditch cursing for much of it it's when you sort of walk around and get from venue to venue but it's a fantastic festival and I've absolutely missed it I'm looking forward to getting back. What about you Finn?
2: Well I have to be honest and say that I didn't really miss the trip to Park City in terms of uh, you know we have Rotterdam going on at the same time and we have a constricted Berlin, where it's only you know the films are being premiered over seven days. So I think in reality I would have found it quite difficult to negotiate Sundance this year given those constraints. And I was quite happy. I mean, it's it's awful because, of course, I'm a critic, and everyone wants you to see things on the big screen, and believe me, I do too. But thanks to Sundance's online version being so strong, I was able to watch so much more than I could have had I been in Park City. And also, Sundance was. It wasn't going to be hundred percent live. It was going. It was going to try pioneer a half live, half online model, which they had set up where. The films would premiere in Park City and then a couple of hours later, they would be available online. So they were going to try to do both. And um, that was what had to be rejected completely. And everything got loaded as online festivals have tended to do over the last two years since they were invented. (laughs) They front load them. So, you know, what did happen in the end was that all the films played over five days, which is quite a lot for 82 films. So I'm not sure how I'd have managed that at home.
0: I know both of you were able to take part in Sundance last year on the online platform. Actually, I wasn't able to, and this was my first year, and I had an all-access pass. And I was so impressed with how easy it was to use, and then from the navigation to the, hooking things up to your smart TV and to your laptop. You know, it was all a very pleasurable experience, mostly unaffected by the buffering and, you know, the tech issues that seem to affect some of the other platforms we, we often use. It's, it's really the gold standard for an online festival platform, isn't it, Jeremy?
1: Yeah, it really is and we saw that last year and um it's just a joy to use as you say. You just go on it's so easy to navigate. You've got all the films that you put in your favorites and you can watch and um yeah, I can't I can't say any more than that. It's just it's just the best platform I've used.
2: They also sort out all the rights issues. So we've had problems uh, over the last couple of years going onto a festival platform and assuming we'd be able to watch things and then found out that we the rights are restricted for us to see them. So Sundance is really quite unique in that it's really sorted out all of those. And I think it only lost one film through going completely online.
0: Jeremy, did you get as far as uh, exploring any other aspects of the portal? Did you go into the VR space? Did you go into a film party, which is this... Uh, I guess, where you could create your virtual avatar and go mingle uh, online with other sort of delegates who were taking part in, in
1: the Sundance? Yeah, I, I was there. I was, you know, in, the, in that really unusual space, sort of mincing around with my little avatar and my headshot on it and sort of popping in and sort of saying hi to people, which was a really cool experience. I enjoyed that a lot. And you could see other people with their names floating around and it, it felt like a community. And besides that, I watched a few talks as well. And again, it was just easy to navigate. It was a real joy.
0: And Sundance uh, announced its awards winner, of course, at the end of the festival. These are the grand jury winners for the U.S. Dramatic and U.S. Documentary competitions and also the World Dramatic and World Documentary competitions. This year's winners were Nikatu's Juzu's Nanny for U.S. Cinema Dramatic, uh, The Exiles for U.S. Documentary uh, Utama for International Dramatic and All That Breeze for International Documentary. So what were your, did you see these four films, the two of you, and what were your what were your takes on the winners?
2: I think I'll probably hop in here because I saw, I think, almost everything that was on the platform. Um, these world world cinema, i sorry, US Dramatic and, and World Dramatic sections, I mean, they are the big prizes, but there's also the Audience Prize, which I think is probably the biggest prize at Sundance and that went to Navalny which is the uh, documentary about the Russian politician Sergei Navalny. Um, I thought that they were good choices actually. Really loved Nanny. That's a fantastic film, really strong. And like a lot of films at Sundance this year very genre inflicted, it merges horror with, you know, political issues, socio-economic situation, very clever. A lot of films kind of went down that road this year and The Exiles is, is a very good documentary in which Christine Choi comes back up against, uh come, reunites her. So she's an outspoken documentary. You, you've really got to see it. I think it's probably going to tour the festival circuit and um, she meets up again with some of the leaders of the Tiananmen Square protests from 1989. People like and talks to them about what's happened in the meantime. But the film is actually really about her, and it's a it's a real it's a real audience pleaser in that she's the main star of it. And that's that's the U.S. section and and the world cinema two very different films one from India one from Bolivia. Yes, very nice pictures. And, and once again, those tend to do well on the festival circuit. I think they're a little bit more specialised than maybe the, the U.S. sections. What did you see, Jeremy? That you liked.
1: Well, are we talk- if we're talking about the winners, I mean, I agree with you, Finn. Nanny was really impressive. I love that. I really liked Utama as well. It was good to see that film set in the Bolivian highlands, you know, talking about climate change and an, an elderly couple's way of life and how they have to navigate their future. I liked the Territory, which was one of the audience winners. I didn't see Navalny. I saw Cha-Cha Real Smooth, which was an audience winner too. Just such a classic Sundance movie. Mm. Just imagine what the reception would have been like if you'd been there. He's a real talent. But yeah, I mean, you know, looking more broadly, I loved um, You Won't Be Alone by Goran Stalevsky, which is the Numi Rapace movie, uh, the witch movie, which is at focus. And it's it's just incredible. I've never seen anything like it. But the journey of a witch's soul through these various bodies, it's extraordinary. And documentary wise, I love Descendants, which personally was the best film I saw in the festival, which Netflix acquired and it's about uh, a community in Alabama who are descendants of the last slave ship that came to the United States, and all the intrigue around that. It's an extraordinary piece of work.
0: Finn, were there any other highlights for you? I mean, what really struck me was just how many incredible films there were. I guess that's always the case with Sundance, but it did, did it feel like a particularly strong year?
2: I think it was a really strong year for um, female debut directors there was a lot of genre as I said earlier but genre looking at at different areas of real world horror and and real world issues say for example you know taking the Black Lives Matter you know taking Me Too taking things like that and and putting them into a genre context so you had Master, Alice, Fresh, Watcher, Jewel all these films you allow female directors and women of colour you know you allow them at the table you know they make films and what you get is something completely different from them so I would say that apart from say films like Cha Cha Will's Moods Cooper i directed that very endearing film and, and very Sundancy. you just got this sort of powerful bubble of new voices coming from across the spectrum and and dealing with the horror of the issues that we grapple with but in this fabulous way
0: well, I did actually manage to watch a few films myself. Uh, some of the ones that I that I really enjoyed. I, I liked Oliver Hermanus's Living, uh, which was number nine films production, which I think SPC took from many markets. We can talk about the deals shortly, Jeremy, but um, that was very good, fantastic performance from Bill Nighy and, of course, a remake of Akira Kurosawa's Akiru. I really enjoyed Sophie Hyde's Good Luck to You, Leo Grande, with Emma Thompson and Daryl McCormack, who we named as the star of Tomorrow last year. Really great film about a middle-aged woman who, a lonely middle-aged woman who uh, brings a young male escort into her life and it mostly unfolds in the hotel room where they meet. Um, I really liked Emily the Criminal with Albreu Plaza. That was a really fun film. Very, um, very enjoyable kind of crime thriller about a a woman who just not had much luck in life and just turns to credit card scamming to sort of uh, help kind of make some money. Um, Fresh, which was, I thought, also extremely disturbing, but a great sort of performance from Daisy Edgar-Jones, who, of course, we remember from Normal People. I loved Chacha's Real Smooth, which both of you have also mentioned. And I liked some of the docs as well. I saw Lucy and Desi, which I thought was a really sweet and you know wonderful kind of exploration of that relationship. Especially having seen being the Ricardos recently as well, that was a that was nice to sort of fill in the gaps about that story uh, between Lucille Ball and, and Desi and Downfall of the Case Against Boeing, which is a which is a Netflix title, which I thought was a very strong very well-made documentary, and Fire of Love, which, of course, won awards as well, which Nat Geo Films took, and that was the story of the volcanologists who tragically died. Um, the French volcanologists, Katie and Maurice Kraft, uh, really sort of full of spectacular imagery. So some really great stuff. I mean, you know, it was, it was obviously a pleasure to be able to watch this, as we've said, from the comfort of your living room. A lot of great films, and I'm sure there are m- many of them are going to go on to travel, onto other festivals and also become awards contenders. I mean, do we think the lineup is as strong, for instance, as last year's winners, where basically we're still talking about those, aren't we? CODA, Summer of Soul, Hive, Flea, they're all in the awards conversation this year. That felt like a particularly strong year, but do you think the films that we're talking about from the 2022 edition will have a similar trajectory?
2: Well, it all depends really on what happens in the international marketplace between now and awards, doesn't it? You know, you have to see what comes cropping up in in Berlin and Cannes and then Venice. But, you know, but I'd certainly say that we would be looking to see Navalny come up for documentaries. Certainly, I I would be shocked if that if that isn't involved in any conversation. Probably you won't be alone. Good luck to you, Leo Brandy, for a lot of attention, probably for Emma Thompson on McCormack, probably for Bill Nye and Living, and then these films that I'm talking about—the genre, the female, you know, led genre surge. It's hard to fit them in awards sometimes because you know people like to kind of keep genre separately. But I, I would expect to see them coming up all the way through the year. What, what do you think, Jeremy?
1: Yeah, I agree with you, and um, I also think uh, Descendant will will get awards play later in the year. Yeah, Navalny for sure. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I think it, I think this is a pretty strong crop. I know that the buyers behind these films are certainly making noises about awards runs. And um, yeah, let's see when we put, we'll have greater context perhaps by, you know, summer, early fall. Well, Jeremy,
0: perhaps we could look at some of the deals that have been announced so far. Obviously the headline grabber uh, has been Apple's $15 million deal for Cha-Cha Real Smooth. So not on the same level as last year's $25 million record breaker for which is what they plonked down for Coda, but business feels like it's been relatively brisk, unsurprisingly led in large part by the
1: streamers. What's your take? Yeah, it's been good. And, um, you know, Apple, they really like to sort of steal the limelight in Sundance, don't they, these days? It started slowly over the first weekend, but that's always the case, even when, you know, we can physically attend. There's a lot of films the buyers need to see what's there before they start making bids or things start to coalesce. But we had the two Nat Geo acquisitions in the first weekend, Fire of Love and The Territory. And then it became a steady trickle with um, Searchlight taking Leo Grande for about $7.5 million for the United States. As you mentioned, Sony Classics took Territories on Living. And then we had Focus coming in later in the week, buying Brian and Charles for The World. Uh, IFC partnering with Shudder, taking a couple of those genre films, Resurrection and Watcher, two good films. And then the Apple deal, and there's more. More are going to come in in the days and weeks ahead, for sure. There's lots of um, offers that are on the table for the buyers. Is it
0: interesting that the streamers are really kind of dominating the, the buying marketplace now for Sundance? I think my understanding of the focus deal for Brian and Charles is that that does have a the actual commitment to it. But otherwise, it's mainly films that are going to be out on streaming, correct?
1: Yeah, it is. And that's no surprise. They've, they've got the money. They can move quickly and aggressively. And that's the way things are going. When there's uncertainty about the extent to which audiences, particularly older audiences, will return to cinemas, and we all hope they will, and uh, that will come, these streamers are just buying the films, and they can always do these smaller theatrical uplift releases in support of their films. It's not the traditional theatrical release, but they're definitely the ones who are making the running. And we saw that in Sundance last year, too.
0: Were there any films that you didn't see on the portal that you're excited to see now, Finn?
2: Um, No. (laughs) I I kind of I I got what I needed to from the portal I I don't feel like I've left any stones on turned and, and that's such like as I was saying before that's such a golden opportunity for a critic because when you go there you know the films are scheduled at certain times and you have to you have to be there before they start you know so you don't have enough hours in the day to to see what you can see when you're looking at the portal so I took that gift horse <laughs> and I ran with it until um, until the festival ended yeah so, and all I can say is that there's a lot there and it definitely will be coming out through the year we expect to see that happening all year really coming out
0: of Park City so even though it's a second year online Jeremy Sundance's position in the
1: market is still as important as ever oh well, I think so absolutely you know as, a, as I say it sets the pace films are really good all the buyers are looking scouring at the list of acquisition titles and it's meaningful it's meaningful to win awards from there and as Finn said particularly the audience award for Navalny and they can really start to gather steam from here on in and should we
0: uh, have a quick just chat about the DGA, PGA, and WGA nominations, which also came out at the end of last week, Jeremy. And uh, Obviously, award season's still in full swing. Did the uh, nominations from those three guilds sway the race in any one way or the other, do you think?
1: I think it confirmed you know, a core of really strong movies that we'll expect to see getting an Oscar nomination for Best Picture uh, next Tuesday, February the 8th. Um, you've got Power of the Dog, West Side Story, Dune, uh, Licorice Pizza, King Richard, Don't Look Up, and Coda, which was a big Sundance movie last year, of course. And the one film that I think is starting to edge its way in, I would say, is Being the Ricardos, which got that Producers Guild nomination, and it got a Writer's Guild nod as well, as you'd expect for Aaron Sorkin. It's got SAG recognition for the acting for Javier Bardem and Nicole Kidman. It's an interesting race. It's open, and it's going to be really cool to see um, what the Oscars uh, the Academy decides next week when they announce their nominations. And I should add that Belfast is also one of the strong contenders uh, in the pack that I think we'll expect to see get a Best Picture nomination.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, we'll see... uh... The shape really starts to take place in the next uh, week or so with the Bath nominations on the third and the Oscar nominations on the eighth. Well, Finn and Jeremy, thank you both very much for sharing your Sundance reactions. We'll all look forward to Sundance returning to its physical form next year. In the meantime, a festival we know is having a physical form is Berlin, where Finn, you and I will both be heading next week. The European film market has gone entirely online, of course, and Jeremy, that's why the first time we'll be seeing you in 2022 is Cannes. But Finn, we're now going to hand over to you to hear from Carlo Chatrian about bringing back the Berlin Film Festival as an in-person event this year. Stay tuned, and Jeremy and Finn, I'll see you both soon.
2: I'm here, as Matt said, with Carlo Chatrian, who's the Artistic Director of the Berlin Alley. Carlo, thank you so much for sparing us the time today to be on the podcast. It's a pleasure.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: And of course, you know, you're in the run-up, you're in the final days. How are things in Berlin? How are people feeling coronavirus-wise, festival-wise? Is everybody confident, a bit nervous? Can you set the scene?
3: Well, uh, you know, the, the feeling, I think it's not different from any other big city in Europe. So you have people that are looking forward to taking part at the festival, other people that are maybe more concerned and uh, they are planning, but uh, they are still um, uncertain. In terms of uh, uh, rules, the city is totally open, and uh, we had a meeting last week with the mayor, the new mayor of the city, and she shared with us her her strategy, which is uh, to go on with uh, cultural activities. Omicron is full in place right now in Germany, so the number of cases is very high but luckily number of of um, hospitalization is not that high but then uh, probably you you know living and working with this scenario uh, ask a, a big degree of flexibility and also sometimes taking some distance is uh, useful for our mindset yeah
2: how important is it for a festival to, to you know, I mean, it, obviously, we've just been through Sundance and they had to make the decision at the last minute to go online, which was sad for them. And, and this is your second iteration under coronavirus rules. You know, how important is it to the life line of a festival, reach the presence of a festival that it goes ahead in physical or do you think that online is OK
3: as a holding pattern or a way forward? I think there is no single answer Uh, the answer can change from festival to festival and also can change on the country and the moment of the year where you are taking place. For us at Berlin, uh, making a festival without the theaters, uh, without the audience that is located here in Berlin, it's very hard. It's very hard to to figure, uh, to think about it. Then uh, I think this is also the big difference between uh, European film festivals and uh, American ones. We are a part of a chain. We are supported by the government, who support theatres, who support the production of films. The chain starts again with a with a funding, a public funding, and with another public funding to the theatres and distribution company. So we really believe to be part of this chain. And then me personally, especially now, I, sh- I have to say I uh, consider the theater, the venues, uh, the movie theaters to be the place to support right now, because I feel that uh, it's even beyond the the artistic value of film, but it's really a social need a cultural and social need. Culture is not only watching a great masterpiece, but also at least for cinema, in cinema and for films, to sharing this experience with other people. And after two years, almost two years now of pandemic, I think there is really a need, at least for us, it was clear that we have to fight in order to make it happen. Even if it will be different, even if it will be, uh, maybe for some people more scary, even if it will be smaller, I think we have to go back to a certain kind of uh, collectivity.
2: I understand. I, and, and what you're saying to you, know, some people may be scared. I guess I'm a little bit scared in terms of, not in terms of going to Berlin, but I'm scared in terms of it all being done over seven days. That seems particularly intimidating <laughs> to me. Mm. Um, as a festival goer, You know, do you think it's achievable to, to consume what you have lined up for us in that seven days. I think that's what's scaring me or intimidating me the most.
3: Yeah, well, to tell you the truth at the beginning, there were A plan to do it even in a smaller number of days. And I said, that's not possible. Of course, the decision to reduce not the number of the days where the festival will take place, but to reduce the number of days when the films will be premiered. So when we will have uh, international guests, when we will have face to face presentation, the decision was due to the fact that reducing the number of days will reduce the, the risks. Well, not erase, but reduce the risk because uh, people will uh, hang out for less amount of days. It is a big challenge. The advantage we do have is that uh, Berlin is a big city with different venues and this festival has always uh, take benefit out of that, so we have multiple centers, we have the zoo uh, palace in the west where we do premiere panorama and series, we do have the big center in Potsdamer for the competition and encounters, we do have uh, another great venue, the Alte der del Welt, AKV, how do we call it for generations, so we have these multiple, so we can go in with parallel. Program, Of course, the biggest challenge will be for you guys, for the professional and for journalists, because the number of premiere per day will be higher. Mm. And, and I do have a concern uh, on films being reviewed enough. On the other hand, I saw what happened last year. We had, a uh, well, less amount of film, but only in five days. And with technology, we help the film to be seen either before or after their premiere. So I think there will be a way to catch up maybe with films that couldn't benefit of the, of the higher visibility, because for sure, the people will look first at the competition film rather than another section. But that's, uh, that's, that's the challenge of this year uh, to have multiple premiere and multiple press screening as multiple press conference per day.
2: Well, that's what I'm interested in you, your, your array of beautiful looking cinema which I want to talk a bit more about in a minute and how, how we get to it so we, we come over to, to Berlin as the professionals I don't know if maybe you could tell us how, how many people are actually coming now because the European film market obviously is online and the buyers and sellers online they, they will be entitled to get one screening is that correct of the official selection of the Berlin Alley you know online they'll be able to access it will there be a point where we can catch up with the films that we've missed with an, an online Berlinale section later on, or
3: you know, do we get a second yeah. chance? So, for people who have a badge, a press badge, we will have multiple press screenings all over the seven days, more than usual, because each screening will be with half capacity. For people who have a festival badge, we on the top of the public screening where they can have a ticket we will have around 100 industry screening, So uh, running parallel from Friday to Wednesday. And for people who have a market badge, they will have uh, market screening, but also catch-up screening from Thursday to uh, Sunday. So when the festival will be over, uh, Wednesday night, from Thursday to uh, Sunday the market will host uh, catch-up screenings for the market badge orders. I don't know if this is uh, enough or how it, how it will be doable, because still it's a lot of films in uh, in a few days, but what we have put in place is a lot of chance opportunities to catch up with, uh, with films. So uh, film will have a couple of repetitions already during the seven days, and then uh, we'll have more screenings for people who want to stay and they can buy a ticket in the, uh, from Thursday to Sunday. And as said, there will be also catch-up screening in the market on the EFM platform market.
2: How many media, press, and sort of, and, and industry delegates are you expecting to attend in person, Carla?
3: So I don't have the final figures. Uh, my press office told me that there were around 2,000 a week ago when we, well, more than a week ago when we had uh, our press conference. It is likely to be slightly reduced because uh, not all the, all, all the people are confident in coming. There is also the rule that the festival put in place to ask uh, a daily antigenic test to guarantee the safety of people, but at the same time, it's also it's something more that we ask. And uh, some, some journalists uh, are happy with that. Some others are a little bit more scared or not happy with that. So I, I don't have the exact figure, but I think it will be for sure more than 1,000, which is uh, usually we do have more than 4,000. So it's reduced.
2: It's reduced, yeah, definitely. And I was going to ask you about that 24-hour test, because I think everybody sort of clocked us with a bit of surprise, because if you're already double vaccinated, you're boosted, you you know, you follow all the rules, then you get this extra 24-hour, which also seems, you know, as I mentioned the word intimidating before, it does seem a little bit intimidating, you know, because you have to book your ticket as well to, you know, so he's like, oh my gosh, they really... I'm being tracked and now I've got to put an extra layer in it and every 24 hours, and how does that work with the screenings? Was that a decision that, that was made internally at the Berlin Alley or, or did the, the, the city authorities really want that yeah. as an extra
3: security? Each decision we take is uh, negotiated with the local authorities. The Berlin Film Festival is part of a bigger institution, which is part of the government. And this bigger institution as uh, the final word when it comes to security. So it is internal, but not internal only to us. It's internal to the bigger institution we are part of, which is, by the way, also uh, can consider this advantage, but it's also a big advantage because being part of this bigger institution allow us to have a, well, a lot of freedom in taking our decision because our shoulders are covered by them because we are part of the government. So we have one advantage on one, hand so we can uh, reduce for instance the price of tickets we can have extra screenings we can have more screenings that we usually have on the other hand we have to negotiate our rules always with basically with the government it's part of the government it's
2: just all part of living with coronavirus, yeah. I suppose, you know, are there um and, and, I, and I'll stop, you know, I just I just wanted to kind of, for anyone's listening, kind of situate listeners into how it's going to actually look next week. I mean, do you have an idea, you know, having been there and at the last fully physical Berlin Alley Film Festival, if you go there, come and join you, see your films, is it going to look any different, Carla, or is it going to look the same?
3: this is about predictions and predictions are always very uh, personal i don't know i well on one hand let me assure reassure you and assure your, your colleagues that for the press we will have rooms for screenings then each screening will have half capacity so it won't be the usual berlinale there will be things that i think it will be better because you don't have to queue because you will have you will have your tickets uh guarantee uh, your Place in either at the Berlinale Palace or the Cinemax. We have gathered all the press screening around here, so you don't have to move uh, all the city if you don't want to. In terms of audience, uh, it's going to be more or less the same. So, the, the, again, the theater will have half capacity. Which is uh, I I've been in Venice and it worked. It can resonate the theater without capacity. On the other hand, we do have the red carpet. We will have guests. Uh, I think all films in competition will come with guests. So we expect that all the film called Gala will come with guests. Which is a, I mean I, I'm pretty surprised in a positive way. I mean the, I feel a lot of support uh, from everywhere. We have the red carpet, but of course the people in the fence area will be less than usually. They will have to show their test and whatever. Uh, so it will be a new experience. I, I consider that to be a first step in something that maybe uh, we will have to deal in the future. So try to, to make a festival happen in pandemic time. And maybe it's also key, will give ideas to our colleagues uh, how to improve, how to change. Uh, uh, because uh, at the core, you know, at the core, we really would like to keep the festival experience, which is watching film together. Then find a moment to talk about this film with your friends, or uh, even like we are doing right now, but sharing uh, the emotion in the eyes of the other. This is something I th- at me personally, I have missed. So uh, even if it's going to cost a little bit more to everyone, I think it's something that will be rewarding.
2: When you were talking about the logistical items that you have to consider, I was thinking you'll be in hot demand from every other festival director and conference organizer about how you how you manage this logistical complication. It's certainly something else that you're, you're you're putting on there. And 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 yes, I'm sure that you know certainly everyone supports you because we'd all like to get back into the cinema ultimately. And I imagine this is not something that you ever thought would happen when you took up this job,
3: Carlo. <laughs> Absolutely um, not. Absolutely not. Yeah. They, they asked me, oh, now you can uh, tell us uh, after three years if you feel confident." I said, well, it looks like I'm still after the first year because everything is new with this setting. And uh, yeah
2: but oh, the thing that the first thing that you instituted I suppose it was the most remarkable change between when you came and the first year of your artistic direction was the um encounter section which is sort of um a very special section that's that's come up with some lovely films over over the last three years and I think is has sort of made it made a mark I'm looking at it this year can you talk a little bit about how that's evolved and because I know you, you have a special love for this section and and perhaps because it's a it's a little bit different the films that are in here maybe you could just talk about a little bit a few
3: of those films sure sure well again when we create the section we had the desire to give room to certain films that are not done in the usual way or they ask the viewer to have a different approach and then the films define the section uh, so this year i'm very happy when i look at the program I'm very satisfied because, you know, one of the things that people ask me, okay, uh, they say uh, Encounter is for newcomers. And yes and no, of course. It's easier for a newcomer filmmaker to uh, uh, to be selected in Encounters rather than maybe in the main competition. But at the same time, it's not uh, for newcomers. So having uh, Peter Strickland or Bertrand Bonello, uh, just to mention two names, but also Gaston Solnicki or Shomiake or... Uh, Ruth Beckerman, filmmaker that has a, a long trajectory behind them, it's, it's an important sign. And, and why these films are there? Because I think they have a, a freedom in their structure, in their style, that, uh, well, for me, is a great sign in the in trust in cinema, in what cinema can do. Of course, are films that uh, deal with the cinema narrative in a special way, so there are films that we decide to select in encounters because they are, for us, they are better in a in a smaller theater than in a 1600s uh, theater place. Films where it's not the red carpet, but rather the talk with the filmmakers and the actors that make the difference. Films where I don't have uh, any uh, reserve in presenting the film. Directly in talking with the filmmaker before showing the film, so there is a different freedom in selecting, in presenting, and uh, hopefully in uh, in showing and uh, these films. And altogether, I think uh, that's our goal, our wish. They also show path that can be taken. For me, uh, some films presented in Encounters uh, in this year's selection are the best portrait of. Uh, Humanity nowadays, not only because of the lockdown, not only because of the pandemic, but also because of the style. So they, uh, the, the the geographical borders are completely blurred. I think they are they are really probably because these films are done with a different budget. Also, the filmmakers have a better freedom in expressing themselves in a different way.
2: I like the idea that it's a section that almost classifies itself, right? I, I, that you can be fluid w- with it. Mm. And I'm really interested to see what, what the films is programmed programme, because I, I don't think I can tell from the last two years. So that's that's interesting to hear you describe it. But I'm wondering, you know, we've just finished with Sundance has screened all its films, and if there was a dominant theme at Sundance, it was, you know, you could call it genre, but it's more sort of the terror of the times. So, so it, whether it be Black Lives Matter and Me Too manifesting themselves in horror framework. So, so you can see that quite clearly from Sundance and, and you can read the terror of our times into it, although it's not ever overtly so named. Can you see anything coming out of your festival, which looks very European?
3: Mm, that's a very interesting question because it is true that the genre, especially the horror topic is more present outside Europe US, but also in the Asia. We have seen very interesting move in the end, we couldn't select all of them. I don't know if it's our intention or it's really what uh, the selection told us, but what I felt as a strong uh, element is the lightness. So the fact that many filmmakers want to play with a strong topic, but with a certain, of, with certain lightness, with using the comic element, using humor, using irony, going to the grotesque uh, sometimes, Which for me, it's a way also, it's a a different answer, but to the same problem. So uh, when everyone is frightened or is isolated, either you can reproduce that through the genre in a direct way, or on the other hand, you uh, try to look away, not uh, to escape, but to give a different uh, perspective on the things. So I was... uh, very surprised uh, afterwards, when I look at the selection, that there were a number of films that were on one end, they were dealing with the pandemic, but also they were trying to inject a different tone. Bonello, I think it's a good example. It's a very pandemic movie. It's about a teenager stuck in, a, in her bedroom, but there is a lot of humor around her. Bonello play with uh, stop animation using Barbie and Big Jim and say making them saying things that people couldn't say in a very irreverent way. Or uh, Strickland play with uh, uh, what well, flux gourmet is about the food as an art, but also the food as what is it leaves out of you in terms of noises and, and other things. What really surprised me, because I didn't expect that, is, again, films that are strong in topic, they can include a comic element. In the competition, too, I mean, the the Swiss film, La Ligne is very much about that. It's a family fighting, but at the same time, you have an element of comedy. The film by Andreas Dresen uh, is another good example. It's a mother fighting for her son to be liberated from Guantanamo, but she's so uh, energetic and so... Uh, vivid that it becomes also a kind of a uh, set-up comedy character. So that is the, my take away from uh, that selection. There are many others for sure, but that's the, the probably the thing that really surprised me because I didn't expect that. And probably it's also something that we wanted to uh, to put, like this is something I said, we decided to open with a Ozone Peter von Kant because it's a very reverent, very light very also cultural-wise, interesting take on uh, Germany, on Fassbinder, on gender and genre uh, issue.
2: Well, that's really—I would never have expected that response. I mean, this is a new world, old world. The old world is making jokes, and the new world is terrified. There's not, yes, cinema defying our expectations. Can I ask you about the Europe, very European? Obviously, the Berlinale is is a huge European festival, but perhaps my perception was was that that you you went really very European this, this year, you know, specifically, you know, with competition, which in the past and, say, the special argalas galas have had a lot of international stars stopping off for a German release or, a, you know, a, on a European tour. And that's not the way that you've gone at all this year. Is When potentially it would have been available to the Berlin Alley with the different dates and the Oscars and the BAFTAs, the awards season. Was that uh, just something that happened? Was that a deliberate steer on your part?
3: no no look we uh, i think the on that the pandemic uh, impact on our selection on the one hand, because berlin Berlin film festival has always been very connected to the studios and the studios need to plan very much in advance their release and with the pandemic that's more complicated so we had a number of conversations with studio and in the end basically the film either were not ready or they, the release were pushed ahead. On the other hand, what I don't agree is that this year, it, it is true that is Europe has always played uh, uh, the lead role at the, at the selection, but we do have uh, more than last year films coming from other countries, especially Asia is present. We have uh, a film from Indonesia and it's a way long that we didn't have that in the main competition well well we have a film from south korea we have a film from mexico a film from canada we have an american movie so out of uh, 18 uh, i would say if not us 30 40 percent comes out out of europe it is uh, true that what is still missing we have more than last year still missing is the presence of big u.s stars we do have some film uh, uh Emma Thompson is UK, but with a uh, with a film that is uh, done by an Australian filmmaker with a UK production, but a little bit of uh, also a US money. We do have uh, the outfit, which is a Universal movie by Graham Moore. Uh, so we do have also this kind of film, maybe a little bit less than what we would like to. Hopefully, the pandemic will evolve, and uh, also the companies will uh, be able to deal better with uh, with their plan and. Uh, because I wish, I still believe that uh, Berlin is a great place to have this kind of movie, you know? I'm
2: gonna ask you one, just, just a really personal question is like, in any of these films, because I think we all thought when the pandemic started that we would be watching tons of films set in the pandemic with people wearing masks and having all sorts of drama, and then we realised a year later that like no one wants to watch a film with people wearing masks and having pandemic drama. Like it's the last thing we want to see. <laughs> what are you seeing in terms of the pandemic in your selection, and given it, you know, bearing in mind that you are showing the cream of what what's been made in the last year, how's it coming across in cinema?
3: Well, I think that the association between pandemic and mask is very superficial. And as you said, probably also, uh, well, first of all, it's not easy to act with a mask. Uh, you can do it, but it's not easy. Then you, you probably can make a needs time to incorporate that in their narrative and their way of directing actor. Uh, But on the other hand, I think that uh, when we talk about pandemic and uh, we're talking about a state of mind, a state of uh, yeah, a way of living, a way of connecting with others, a way way of experiencing the society, because cinema is not about lonely people. Cinema is not about individuals. Cinema has always been about people getting together. So this year, I already told that the selection for me, it's very much on pandemic because films... Uh, we selected but also films that we didn't select not only were shot during the lockdown so you can see, you have few location, a few characters but also they try to make sense out of it, not simply reproducing what happened but try to make sense out of it and uh, something that I said, so the fact that we received, uh, we selected and received so many films about family for me it means something family is probably the, the first experience of a collectivity we all have uh, that's the first moment, even in uh, uh, with a single mother or with a dysfunctional family. It's the first moment where you have to interact with others. I felt that selection, or because the submission is is bigger than selection, like a starting point. Like if filmmaker want to start a new uh, telling stories, the usual story but with a different state of mind. And the starting point for was, which was very moving to at least to perceive it that way, was to deal with uh, personal uh, feeling, love, uh, family love, maternal love, passion love, uh, hate love. That was something that for me was uh, like very moving as a a feeling. Then uh, in order to have, uh, to answer your question, we do have a couple of films with people wearing masks but it's not really about that. I think uh, both films are not really about pandemic. It's just uh, decoration, yeah.
2: Yeah, I just, in a way, I'm just wondering when we're going to be able to want to watch it. You know, it's just, to, just, just, also, as a yeah,
3: yeah, also. Just an aside. Well, no, no film, no, this year, not a single film I watch. I haven't watched all the films, but not a single film I watched uh, dealt with people being killed by the pandemic. I mean, being healed by the pandemic. Not a single one. While the year bef- the year before, we got some documentaries, some fiction that were like shot very fast, uh, dealing about people suffering. Because I think now there is a different knowledge, there uh, are different understanding, and we probably we'll have to deal with that longer. It's not gonna be next March, next uh, summer, the end of it.
2: And finally, as you're talking about going through the selection, what's your opinion on world cinema? You know, two years in, as we've all adapted and changed, and you've adapted and changed as a festival in terms of what you've seen. What's your report from the front line of, of programming?
3: You mean about the world cinema
2: or uh, about the world cinema? You know, about what you've seen. Is the sector yeah. healthy? Is it? Is it independent filmmakers? You know, what's what's the report back? Well, again, as I,
3: as I told you, but uh, at, at the festival we see a part of the. Uh, year production because uh, we do have uh, exchange with streaming platform but of course the bulk of their work goes directly on streaming but uh, if I have to uh, judge based on the submissions I feel that uh, world cinema is pretty much alive this year the well we select in the end only one or two but the iranian production was very strong for instance oh. very vivid and very strong finally after some years of research we have a, an african film in, in encounters we do have a, a docu- hybrid documentary in panorama uh, the one in encounters from rwanda the one in, in panorama is from uh, uh, central africa so countries that are usually not Producers of content. We have a film from South Sudan producing Kenya, but shot in South Sudan. So countries that are quite new. So uh, my feeling is that yeah, the world cinema and the cinema, the independent cinema, the independent scene is pretty much alive. That's my feeling. What I felt more as a problem is the more structural production. So we receive a lot of films from the U.S. pandemic movie, but they were look-alike. They were all very similar. The stories were different, but the style was very similar. That's probably also why we select less than usually. Again, as I said, the films that uh, we are missing is the big production. I think that it takes more time to put in place a big production and work uh, for uh, a worldwide release, uh, unless you are you are Marvel or you are you already come with a, a content that everybody knows.
0: That brings us to the end of this episode of The Screen Podcast. Thank you to my colleagues, Finn and Jeremy, and also to our guest for today's podcast, Carlo Chatrian. And thank you very much for listening. The Screen Podcast is available wherever you listen, and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to let us know how you're enjoying this podcast. Also, do keep up with the latest news from the international screen industries at screendaily.com and at our social media outposts, including at Screen Daily on Twitter. This episode was produced by Danielle Kosh. Tune in next time. We'll see you then.